Well, this morning we come to the finish line of our uh, series that we've been in for the last three months. We have watched the uh, journey of Abraham and Sarah, the adventures they've had in their journey of faith. And we've discovered quite a bit about walking by faith in our own lives. We've learned that the heroes of our, heroes of our faith were quite human. It was not beyond reason that people of faith can fall short and shrink back in fear. But hopefully you've also been encouraged during this journey to realize that anyone, any one of us can become a man or woman of great faith. If we're simply willing to walk with the Lord and to obey him every step of the way. Last week we walked through the death of Sarah. For over a century she and Abraham had been together on this journey. Uh, you remember that midway through her life and midway through their marriage, Abraham came to her and said that God had told him to leave their comfortable life in Ur, to leave their family, their people, all that was familiar to them, and to become nomads. Just to become nomads. They didn't know exactly where they were going, but they were to walk with God and follow his plan and his purpose. Abraham and Sarah had been promised a son the one through whom God would create a nation. They waited 25 years until God began the fulfillment of that process. Sarah saw step one, the birth of Isaac, but she did not live to see the complete fulfillment. Well, this morning we're in Genesis 24, and here in Genesis 24, uh, Abraham and Isaac continue on without Sarah. Abraham has to step forward in faith. After the loss of his, his partner, he still has significant work left to do as he is responsible to find a bride for Isaac. So he, he steps forward in faith. Remember, Isaac is the one who would, from whom God would make a nation that would bless all nations. He told Abraham, your descendants will be too numerous to even count, too numerous to, to number. And all of that was going to come through Isaac and the bride that God would provide. So Genesis 24, God details the final task or purpose for Abraham and God's provision for Isaac. Look with me in Genesis 24. Let's read verses 1 through 9. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of the earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, see to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring I will give this land, he will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine, only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. So Abraham is too old at this point to make the journey himself. So he gives the responsibility to his chief servant. The chief servant is the one who's in charge of his household. He takes care of all of Abraham's affairs, his business. The servant is not named here, but we're pretty confident this is Eleazar. You remember back in chapter 15, 
when Abraham had not yet received the child of promise and his, his faith was wavering, he wondered to God, before God, if his chief servant, Eleazar, would be his heir. It was common back in that day for a childless couple to name their chief servant or make their chief servant the heir. So we're pretty confident this chief servant is the same Eleazar. And so Eleazar is instructed by Abraham to make the journey back to Mesopotamia, where Abraham is from. And Abraham makes it very clear he does not want a wife for his son Isaac from the people of Canaan. Abraham recognizes the dangers of mixing with the Canaanites. The, the Canaanites do not follow the Lord. In fact, later on in the Mosaic law, the Israelites, the descendants of Isaac, are instructed not to intermarry with the Canaanites. So Eleazar is instructed by Abraham to go back to his homeland. That's about a 450 or 500 mile journey. Likely it's going to take about a month to make that journey. Now look in verse 5, Eleazar's concern, you can imagine after making a journey that long and having to give his word to Abraham, he's concerned. He says, what if I can't find a woman who will leave her family and, and travel back with me? And that's a legitimate concern. When a woman married, she left her, her family, she joined her husband's family and his clan and, and his tribe. And while leaving her family was certainly the norm at this time, to move so far away from her family likely meant she would rarely see them, if at all. So Eleazar asked Abraham, now, if you want your son to marry someone from your people back in Mesopotamia, what am I supposed to do if I can't find an eligible bride who will make that journey back and leave her family and join your family and commit herself to unite with your family sight unseen? Should I then take Isaac back there? And what you don't see in verse 6, what you can't hear in verse 6 is the tone of Abraham's voice, but it's, it's firm, almost harsh in verse 6 as he tells Eleazar in answer to his question about taking Isaac back. That's not going to happen. You, you see to it, you make it your priority, you make certain that Isaac does not go back there. You see, Abraham saw some danger in that plan. Perhaps he remembered how difficult it was for him, even under the command and the promise of God, how hard it was to leave his father and to leave his relatives. For sure, Abraham knew God's plan for the future, for Isaac, for creating a, a nation and giving them a country, that plan was centered around Canaan. So Abraham wanted to be sure that Isaac was in the place of God's promised blessing and that he was not going to go back. There was no turning back. And you see that often in Abraham's journey of faith. When he took those steps of faith, he knew there was no turning back. Well, down in verse 7, Abraham gives Eliezer this encouraging word. He says, the God who took me from that place, from his homeland and promised to bless me, and promised to give my offspring this land, he tells Eleazar, that same God who made that promise is going before you. That same God is going to send his angel or his messenger, one, one who does his bidding, that same God is sending his angel before you, and you will succeed in finding a wife for my son. And Abraham had that kind of confidence because of his journey that he had been on in this journey of faith. He's basically saying to Eliezer, listen, you, my dear servant, are on a mission that is part of God's plan. And because you're on a mission that's part of God's plan, you can be assured that as you follow him, he will give you success. 
In verse 8, Eliezer is still a bit nervous. He's still wondering, what if this woman's not going to come back with me? Abraham knows that's not going to be a problem, not going to happen. But in order to calm Eliezer down, he tells him in verse 8, look, if she won't come back, you can be released from this oath. You can be released from this promise that you're making to me. But no matter what, do not take Isaac back there. He was very, very clear on that. You see, Abraham was saying to Eleazar, God brought us here. He will see to it. He will provide. How did Abraham know that? Well, Abraham and Isaac had both seen the provision of God. Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides, the God who will see to it. Now, as we, as we progress through this historical narrative today, there's some very clear principles I want to draw out, some clear principles on the biblical process of choosing a life mate. Now, I realize I just significantly reduced uh, or, or narrowed the focus of my audience today. Most of you are not in the place of, of looking for a, a life mate. You're not at that decision point, or maybe you're not a parent or a grandparent of, of someone who's at that decision point, but I hope you'll recognize that the principles we're looking at today, most of the principles we're looking at today will help anyone in finding God's best in any area of life. And so let's, let's dive in this morning. The first principle we see in these verses we've just read in, in chapter 24 in these opening verses, the first principle is this. If you are at the stage of life where you're seeking a life mate, your parents are the most valuable resource or most valuable tool that you have in making that decision. Let me unpack that a little bit. In the 21st century, in our culture, in, in the Western culture, as we would say, the process of finding a life mate has been mostly removed from the advice and from the involvement of parents. Those who get married in our society kind of decide for themselves which young man or young woman they think might be a good prospect for marriage. And once they've made, once they've made that decision, they pair up in an exclusive relationship with the one that they think is the one, only to decide later, well, maybe there's some other good prospects. And so what happens with a young man or young woman in our culture when they're on their own making that decision is they will typically go through a series of dating relationships and they will suffer several traumatic breaks before they finally settle on the one that they really believe is the one that they will spend the rest of their life with. And that whole process actually leads more likely to further breakup, to divorce, than it does to healthy biblical marriage. Well, in, in Eastern cultures, even today, you see a totally different process, and that process looks a lot like what we see here in Genesis 24. The parents are very involved in the process, and in fact, the parents make the majority of decisions when it comes to choosing a life mate. Now, I realize what just happened. For those here today who are young enough or watching online or in the venue who are young enough to be at that stage and that point in the process, you did one of two things. You either just checked out and shut me down or you just pulled out your phone to send me a text or an email. <laughs> Hang on, okay? Hang on. I'm not saying we should go back to arranged marriages. You know, in most cases, the young man and the young woman are actively involved in that process as well. And in most cases, they can actually decline a proposal they don't prefer. So my point is not that we should have arranged marriages. My point is that if you look biblically, and you can see this all through the Old Testament, parents are involved in a very significant way as they guide the matchmaking process. 
And do you know that studies have shown that when parents are a significant part of that process, marriages are more stable, therefore societies are more stable. It's a win-win. If you have godly parents, if you have parents who walk with the Lord, you have parents and you've seen in your childhood, you've seen in your growing up years that they consistently seek his counsel. If you have them significantly involved in that process, your chances of choosing the right partner increase dramatically. Your parents know you better than you know yourself. Your parents can definitely be more objective when you're head over heels in love. Your parents can give you solid experiential advice. They've been there. It may be hard for you to conceive because they're so old and it, you may not imagine they ever had an experience like you had, but they did. Your parents can help you examine your motives and they can certainly bring some balance to your decisions. Now, I'm certainly not saying your parents are perfect. So don't send me your litany, your list of all the imperfect things your parents have done, the bad decisions they've made to tell me why they shouldn't be involved in this process. They're not perfect. Parents make mistakes. Parents don't always uh, read people perfectly. But I'll say it again, your chances of success in finding God's best increase dramatically when you have your parents involved in the process. Now, let me say this quick word. If you don't have godly parents to help guide your life decisions, you can certainly, as part of this family, you can certainly seek older, uh, godly believers you know who can help give you some good biblical counsel. My only caution to you would be, be careful about seeking advice from people your own age. I'm not saying it's, it's wrong to hear from them or give them an ear, but make sure you have some godly, mature counsel speaking into your life as well. Now, let me, let me say this real quick before we move on in, in the passage. Uh, I said everything we're going to say today applies to seeking God's best, not just about marriage. So let me just throw this out. For those of you that are not seeking a mate, the application of this principle will be very simple. Anytime you're making a decision, you should seek mature godly counsel. You should heed the words of Solomon in Proverbs 15:22. Without counsel, plans fail, but with many advisors, they succeed. In the decisions of our life, in the direction of our life, in the course of our life, we should look first to the Word of God, and then we should seek counsel from godly, mature believers about those decisions we're going to make if we want to achieve God's best. All right, let's go on in uh, Genesis chapter 24. Look at verses 10 through 14 with me. Then the servant took 10 of his master's camels. He immediately started off on this journey. He took 10 of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down outside of the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham... Please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I'm standing by the spring of water, and the daughters of men are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink, and who shall say, drink and I will water your camels, let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. So Eliezer sets out immediately on the journey, all sorts of gifts, uh, on the journey, the 10 camels, and, and they're loaded with gifts, and he makes it to Mesopotamia. He makes it specifically to the city of Nahor. Now, as with most cities, there is a well um, outside the city, 
And it's common in the evening when it's cooler for women to come out and draw water from that well in, in their jars or their pitchers to have the water their family needs for the next day. Eleazar has been with Abraham long enough that he too knew the Lord. And he too walked by faith. You, you see that. It's no surprise. You see that because he, when he gets there, when he gets to the destination, what does he do? The first thing he does is he prays to the Lord to give him success. And I think it's quite likely that Eleazar, in all of his years with Abraham, had seen Abraham pray to the Lord many times in those years. And so Abraham and his life and his walk with the Lord, his influence affected Eleazar and his own faith. And that's a good reminder to us that the way we live, the way we journey on this journey of faith, the way people see us walk with the Lord has a significant impact on those around us. Even when we may not realize it, even when we may not see it, people are watching us in our life, our faith has an impact. Now notice his specific prayer. He wants to be certain, he wants to be clear that the leading is from the Lord, and so he asks the Lord not only that she'd be kind enough to give him a drink, but also that she would volunteer to water his camels as well. You see, he's, he's looking for a woman of character, one who is kind, one who is considerate, one who is hospitable, and also one who's able, that's going to be able to handle the hard work of a desert nomad. Because this woman, just like Isaac's mother, Sarah, this woman is going to have to be content living in a tent, living in a desert, and, and being a nomad. Well, verses 10 through 14, you see a second principle for finding God's best, and that is simply pray. Pray, pray, pray. We, we throw prayer around clichés pretty much in our faith. We just say how important it is to pray. But listen, you can't know the mind of God. You, you can't hear from God. You can't gain wisdom and insight without praying. Can, can you imagine making the second most important decision of your life or any life-changing decision without seeking God? And yet we do that all the time. Well, Eleazar gets there, and the first thing he does, let's just wait for something to happen. The first thing he does is, is he prays to the Lord. He knows his only hope of success is seeing through the eyes of God and, and understanding the heart of God and being surrendered to the purpose of God. So the first thing he does is he prays and asks God to guide this process. Well, the third principle this morning comes out after this prayer, verses 15 and 16 and following, and what you see is the importance of looking beneath the surface. Verse 16 says that Rebecca came out to the well and she was a beautiful young woman. There were probably a lot of beautiful young women, but the servant of Abraham wasn't just looking for a beautiful young woman. He wasn't just looking at their outward appearance or adornment. He's looking for character. He's looking for inner beauty. And inner character typically takes some time to see. And it, it's best observed in stressful situations. Maybe that's why he prayed that she would water the camels. We're going to see the, the stress of that in just a moment. I remember once when I was in uh, college and a buddy was talking to me about a young lady he was interested in and trying to figure out what her character was really like. And when I was in college, I did a lot of short-term missions. And I said, you know what you need to do? You need to take her on the most stressful mission trip you can get on and see how she acts and see what she does. Listen, girls, that young man that has swept you off your feet with his attention to you, he may be very polite to people who are important to him and people he wants to impress. But you gotta, what you need to see is how he treats that waiter or waitress that fouls up your order knowing he's never going to see them again. What does he say and how does he treat them? And young men, when you see that 
young lady who's very kind and gracious to her friends. You want to know, how does she treat those who can't do anything to her? How does she repay those who can't repay? Or how does she treat those who can't repay her kindness? We need to be careful because first impressions aren't always true and accurate. Well, look in verses 16 through 25. I'm not going to read all those verses, but Rebecca comes out. Eliezer quickly sees that she's the answer to his prayer. Why? Because she kindly gives him a drink when he asks, and then just as he prayed, she offers water to his camels. Now you say, well, why, why is that such an important sign? Well, let me point this out. Verse 11 says they were at a well. Verse 13 says a spring. Verse 16 says she went down to the spring. Well, which was it? It was probably a spring outside this city, and they'd built a wall around it like a well to keep out refuse, to keep out animals, but there was probably an opening in that wall with steps that went down to the water level to the spring. Now, Eliezer had how many camels? He had 10 camels. They had traveled a month. We don't know how often they had stopped during that month, where they had been near water as they traversed across the desert, but a, a camel can drink anywhere from 20 to 50 gallons of water at one time, depending on how thirsty it is. So he's got 10 camels. She shows up to gather water, probably a five-gallon jar. That would have been pretty typical. Well, five gallons of water weighs 40 pounds. If you add the weight of the jar, it's very possible when she would walk down into the spring and bring out a jar of water, that was probably about 50 pounds. Now, let's assume the camels weren't uber thirsty. They were only going to drink 20 gallons of water each. 20 gallons of water, I love math, 20 gallons of water, 10 camels is what? It's 200 gallons of water. And she's able to carry, do you remember how many gallons she can carry at a time? Five. Five gallons of water. It would take 40 trips. Each trip coming up, weighing about 50 pounds that she's carrying, it would take 40 trips for her to water, to get enough water for all those camels. We don't know the distance from the spring to the trough, but this likely would have taken way more than an hour, maybe two hours, and she went the distance. She didn't just tell Eliezer she would water the camels. She completed the process. Hey, let me point this out. Do you realize what a big request Eliezer made of the Lord? Hey, have this woman not only give me a drink, have her make 40 trips up and down the steps of that spring and over to the trough carrying 50 pounds on each trip. It's a huge request. And, and as I thought about that, I thought, man, do I ever make big, audacious requests of God? Should. Eliezer knew he'd found a woman of character. He knew he'd found a strong uh, woman with a, with a good work ethic. She's gracious, she's kind, she's hospitable. Well, you look at it and you think, you know, Eleazar was not a very gracious and kind man. You know what he did during that couple of hours or maybe more that she was making all those trips? This woman was carrying all that weight up and down the steps of the spring and over to the trough and watering the camels. You know what he did? He just stood back. He didn't help her. He just stood and he watched. And that brings us to the fourth principle. It's important to take time to observe. 
He's watching her the whole time she's watering the camels. He's observing. He doesn't immediately make a decision just because she was the answer, apparent answer to the prayer. He doesn't immediately make a decision. He's thinking and he's watching. Why is that? Because things can look good at first glance. Someone can look great on a, on a, make a good impression on a first date or on a few dates, and we might be tempted, even though we're seeking God's best, we might be tempted rather than wait on God to move forward quickly, but it's good to pause and to observe and to think deeply, and that's what Eleazar is doing. And he watches her as she completes the task. And if you look in the scripture, it says when she finishes watering the camels, He steps up, and the first thing he does is he gives her a gold nose ring and bracelets. Uh Uh-oh. You know, in those days, women would put a ring in their nose, and it might be a symbol of beauty or of purity. And, And you parents who have teen daughters, as she comes home with a nose ring, you really can't get all bent out of shape. She's going to remind you of Genesis 24, 47. She's going to say it's a purity ring. Just blame it on the preacher. All right, calm down. I know I don't need to say this, but I will to the young men and young ladies in the room. The most important spiritual principle for you at this time is to honor and obey your parents. And let me just speak for all of them. That's no nose rings, no matter what the Bible says. All right, we still do the bracelets on the wrist, but we're not, we're not so high on the ring in the nose. That's for those who live in the east, and I don't mean the eastern U.S. I mean the way far away east, okay? That nose ring stuff's for them. All right, so he gives her the ring and the bracelets, and then he asks about her family, and he discovers they're a hospitable family without ever meeting them. Why? Because she doesn't need to go home and ask permission to bring this man and his entourage to her house. She immediately tells him there's room for him, there's room for the men, and even that they will provide for the 10 camels. Eleazar is blown away. In fact, verse 26 says, he stops right there and worships the Lord for his provision, for his faithfulness, for, for his love. And I had to ask myself, I wonder how often I overlook or take God's blessings for granted. I don't think to stop when God provides and right there on the spot worship and thank him for his love and, and for his faithfulness. That's what Eleazar does. Look what he finds out. This young woman is the granddaughter of Abraham's brother, Nahor. She's from his own family. And Eleazar goes to their home and he shares the story. He recounts to them what has brought him there, the plan and purpose of the Lord. And you see that they receive him warmly and they see the hand of God in what's happening. Look down in verse 50 and 51. This thing has come from the Lord. Let her be the wife of your master's son as the Lord has spoken. Hey, one last principle this morning. You always need to evaluate the the level of spiritual interest and and faith in the Lord. See, there was a clear understanding here and a a mutual interest in spiritual things. What Eleazar discovered is they also worship the one true God, the God of Abraham. He discovered, he, he knew in discovering that Rebecca would be a woman who could walk alongside Isaac as he continues his journey with the Lord. Not only that, he finds out she's a woman of great faith just like Sarah. She's willing to leave everything that's familiar. She's willing to go to a place that she has never seen and she's willing to be a nomad and trust the plan and purpose of God. And this is probably the most important principle in, in seeking God's best in a mate. 
You want to be absolutely certain you're spending your life with someone who's at the same place you are spiritually. You don't want to spend your life with someone who has no interest in spiritual things. You don't want to spend your life struggling because your mate, your partner is not walking with the Lord and growing in relation with Christ. Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 6.14 are a good reminder when he tells us not to be yoked together with an unbeliever. Why would you be yoked together with an unbeliever, Paul asks. What do righteousness and wickedness have in common? What fellowship can light have with darkness? I'm going to tell you, after 30 years in this place, and this is not the only place I've ever served, it's wearisome for a pastor to have to speak primarily to women, sometimes to men, who are struggling in their marriage because their partner has no interest in spiritual things. Their partner doesn't want to walk with the Lord. And actually, this, this principle is good, not just related to marriage. It's good in any relationship, business relationships, friendships. We need to be careful that we're not mixing righteousness and wickedness, light and darkness. Well, Rebecca is ready. She travels with Eleazar across the desert back to Hebron. She hasn't even met Isaac, but she's already committed. She's already dedicated. She's already committed to doing whatever is necessary to be the life mate and, and, and the partner on the journey that God has for them. Now, we haven't read, there's 67 verses in this chapter. We haven't had time to read them all, but I hope you'll go back and read the whole story. But let's just move to the end. When the caravan reaches home, reaches Hebron, there's this wonderful meeting of Isaac and Rebekah. The story closes with, with this simple statement of verse 67. She became his wife, and he loved her. So here we are some 65 years after that covenant promise was made to Abraham and God has given Abraham near the end of his life the privilege of seeing the next big step in the ongoing fulfillment of giving him descendants too numerous to count. Descendants who God would call to be his people and they would, he would call them his own. Descendants who would be given a, a land. God would give them a land that would be their own land. Descendants who would be a nation that would bless all nations. Descendants through whom the Messiah would come. And Abraham is seeing the next step in that fulfillment. And you know that generations later, when the people of God, the Israelites, are actually moving into the land, you see this testimony from Joshua in Joshua chapter 21 and verse 45. Listen to what he says. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord has made to the house of Israel has failed. Not one word of all the good promises the Lord has made to the house of Israel has failed. All came to pass. The eternal God is, the eternal God was a faithful God. He completely fulfilled the promise to Abraham. And because of that, down to our day, we're blessed. Through his descendants came the Messiah. That's what we're celebrating at this season. That's what we look forward to as we look to Easter. Because of the faithfulness of God to Abraham, strictly by grace, not because Abraham was worthy, but strictly by grace, God chose this man, and through him and through his descendants, we have been blessed. Messiah has come. The eternal God is faithful. Wherever you are in your life, whatever you're struggling with, whatever you're going through, the eternal God is faithful. Would you bow with me this morning here in the worship center, in the venue, those of you online, would you take just a moment and reflect on what we've learned this morning about the faithfulness of our God? 
we're all at different stages in life. We're all at different places spiritually. But as we gather week by week and open the word of God, the Holy Spirit of God who indwells every believer can speak to us right where we are. Those of you who are young, those of you who are single, do you see how Isaac was greatly blessed by Abraham's involvement in this crucial decision? There is value, there is great value in godly counsel for all of us. I don't know about you, but I don't want to make any missteps on the journey. I want to be faithful to the word of God. I want people who challenge and, and hold it up before me. You know, prayer really is critical in those life-changing decisions. It's not just a polite, hey, hey, God, do you have anything to say about this? It's a, it's a real seeking. Praying deeply. Sometimes we just need to slow down. Ask God to help us see through his eyes. Evaluate the situation and and people through spiritual eyes, through the wisdom and insight he gives. Above all else, in all of our relationships, we need to be so careful not to mix light and darkness, righteousness and wickedness. Over the last three months, we've seen just an incredible picture of God's love and grace, and that's available to everyone today. You, you may be here this morning, and it's maybe your first visit, maybe you've been with us through the series, you've seen the hand of God, and you've thought, wow, what would it be like to have God's blessing like that? Well, that blessing starts with committing ourselves to a relationship with him, receiving Christ as Savior who forgives our sin and making him Lord of life and walking with him. In just a few moments, we're going to go from this time of reflection response into the Lord's Supper where we celebrate what Christ has done for us on the cross. And at the end of the service, I'll be down at the front. There'll be pastors in the lobby. There'll be pastors in the venue back by the Next Steps banner. If you need to come to faith in Christ today, if you need to take another step in your faith, if you need help, you need counsel, you need prayer, that, that's why we're here. But this morning, we need to ask the Lord, what, what are you saying to me? This morning as we prepare to come to this table as believers and commemorate what Christ has done, we need to be prepared for that. We need to examine our lives. Father, thank you for your word. Father, thank you for truth. Father, thank you that your word is abundantly clear. We don't have to wonder. You've made it very, very clear. And Father, this morning as we come to the end of Abraham's journey of faith, I thank you for all the things that you've taught us. And I thank you that we're reminded again this morning that you are the eternal God. You're unchanging. Every promise you have made has or will come true. You're the unchanging God who loves us with a grace and a mercy that we don't deserve. And yet you pour that out on us. And fathers, we come now to a time where we remember that love, 
We remember the sacrifice that Christ made for us on the cross. We remember that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Father, let that remembrance motivate us more and more to give our lives as a living sacrifice to you. For we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.